Well, good evening and welcome to our latest installment of Christianity Proper. Uh, If you're watching live or listening to the podcast, we thank you and we are glad that you are listening along with us or tuning in or watching us live. As the title says, this will be Crusades and Christian Confusion. uh, confusion. Now, I'll start out by saying that um, this is one that I'm going to try to be as direct and clear as possible, which I always try to do that. But this is about a current event, an event, in fact, that's happening right now, just kicked off a few minutes ago, an event that has been publicized and advertised for uh, months now. And so I do want to jump right into that, but I have some opening remarks that I want to work through before we actually start breaking some stuff down. Um, Do we trust the gospel? I'll just start with that question. The last installment of the podcast really was trusting in the power of the gospel. I would ask of you, if you have not listened to that, or um, if you didn't even know that it was out there, you can look up Christianity Proper, the podcast, find that episode specifically. I would ask that you take some time to listen to that because ultimately, the reason that I decided to, to go ahead and do a couple of podcasts specifically on this event is because I feel like the more that I've uh, the more that I have learned about this, the more that I've researched this event and looked into it, um, it seems like this is a great example of kind of what we're talking about when we say that there's confusion and uh, there is evidence. If we look for it, we'll see it. There is evidence that uh, A lot of the methods in church today, a lot of the methods that get used and utilized, um, they actually prove that we don't actually trust the power of the gospel to save. We we trust in our own efforts. We trust in our own schemes or strategies. And so that's ultimately what I want to get at in this episode. So let me go ahead and and, uh, address a couple of things. It is a great thing. It is a commendable thing. Every single believer ought to be zealous about winning souls, zealous about sharing the gospel. This is this is not downplaying or attacking crusades or evangelistic efforts. Those things are wonderful. We should be trying to reach as many people as we can with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should be seeking to make disciples of every tribe, tongue, and nation, calling them to repentance and faith, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever Christ has commanded us. That is a good thing. I'm not saying that anybody who utilizes these methods, whether it be at the Rick Gage Crusade or whether it be at church next Sunday at the church that you attend, whether it be at the church that you were saved in or the evangelistic outreach event that you were saved at or that you consider yourself to be saved at, I'm not saying that anybody who uses these methods are not real Christians or that they're our enemy. I'm also not saying that they're doing these things on purpose. I'm not saying that they're intentionally misleading people or intentionally trying to confuse people. What I am saying and what I want to say clearly is that these methods are not biblical and they aren't Christian, a lot of them. So we can say that the methods aren't biblical, the methods aren't Christian methods. And we are saying that the methods do mislead and confuse people. And it shows that we don't actually trust God. 
Paul says in Romans chapter one, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe to the Jew first and also the Gentile. When we employ these methodologies that aren't biblical, in, in some way, to some extent, whether we like it or not, we're saying we are ashamed of the gospel. So we're going to do it this way instead. We are ashamed of the gospel. So we're going to put a different spin on it or we're going to try to make it easier. And so ultimately, can we say along with Paul that we're not ashamed of the gospel or do we have to say to some extent that, yeah, I'm kind of ashamed. And so we try to do these other things. I'm going to give it just a moment again. It's saying that, so as far as the live feed on the video, it keeps going in and out. Not sure why that is, but I'm just going to keep pushing through. If you're watching and you're having a hard time watching, sorry, uh, you can go to the podcast later on and all of this will be there. So ultimately, can we say along with Paul that we're not ashamed of the gospel or would we have to actually admit we are kind of ashamed of the gospel? And so that's why we try to present it in some other way or try to make it easier, try to make it more accessible. Ultimately, all those things are proving that in some way, shape, or form, we are ashamed of the gospel. So a couple of questions to consider as we, as we go through uh, the sermon that we're going through. And we are going to be going through a sermon that Rick Gage preached uh, this morning at Baxley Church of God before the crusade kicked off tonight. And so just a couple of questions to consider. What does it take for sinners to be saved? Now, most people, when they hear that question, most people would simply say, oh, faith. It takes repentance and faith, repent and believe. Most people are going to answer that question in the biblical way. They're going to say repentance and they're going to say faith. But this next question I have found sometimes unearths the real issue. When you say, how is a person saved? How, how does a person get saved? Or what has to happen in order for a person to be saved? Then you'll hear things like, well, they need to pray the sinner's prayer or they need to ask Jesus into their heart or they need to give their heart to Jesus or give their life to Jesus. That's when you start to hear all of those things that we've talked about before on this podcast. We, we've talked about all those things at different times before, but when you ask the question, how does someone get saved? That's when you will typically hear, give your heart to Jesus, ask him into your heart, blah, blah, blah. And that kind of unearths the real issue because none of those, none of those answers are repent and believe. Those are other things entirely. Asking Jesus into your heart, giving your heart to Jesus, surrendering your heart to Jesus, whatever you want to word it, none of those answers are repent and believe. Okay, so how does someone get saved? Consider those things as we work through this sermon. Again, this sermon was preached this morning at Baxley Church of God. Um, by Rick Gage. And so again, this is not, please don't be, all I can do is say this. I can't make anybody believe it. I know people are going to talk about this um, at some point, but this is not an attack on Rick Gage. This is not an attack on his ministry. Uh, if this is an attack on anything, it's unbiblical, unchristian practices that yes, I do believe very strongly we should ditch them. We should do away with them, throw them in the trash, throw them in the garbage and go back to just trusting the power of the gospel, trusting in God's own power to save sinners by the proclamation of the gospel. So um, I'm, I'm simply saying that this is a sermon that Rick Gage preached, not to put the spotlight on him, but just so we're clear, just so, just so nobody can accuse me of doing things in the shadows or anything like that. This is the sermon that Rick Gage preached this morning uh, at Baxley Church of God. 
And uh, these are just some notes that I took on it. If you wish to hold me accountable, I hope you hold me accountable as well. You can go to the Baxley Church of God Facebook page and watch this sermon for yourself. And you can see if I bring up anything that's dishonest or if I'm misrepresenting anything, I would encourage you to do that because we're not trying to slander or smear anybody or any ministry. We're just trying to point out uh, some confusion within modern Christianity, some confusion on doctrine, some confusion on our practices, and ultimately, really, it is confusion on what saves people. Is the gospel powerful enough to save people in and of itself? Is that where the power of God unto salvation rests? Is it in the gospel alone? Okay, Or do we actually think that we need to try to get people to make decisions, so on and so forth? But that's going to turn into a rabbit trail, so let me just dive right in. He first started out by saying that the the Baxley crusade, uh, really the first meeting for that was, was three years ago. And he shared that their goal was for all the Bible teaching church in the areas to come together. When I write there, I made a little note that that's a noble goal for all Bible believing churches to come together for the goal of reaching the lost. Like there, there's no biblical issues with that whatsoever. And I hope that we could add obviously to that, right? Obviously, we would say all Bible-believing churches coming together for the proclamation of the gospel is a good thing, overwhelmingly good. The issue is when you look at different churches that are involved in this crusade, they're not all Bible-teaching, Bible-believing churches. Now, on paper, yes, but when you when you hear some of the things that these churches are preaching, teaching, sharing, when you... Um, when you see some of the practices that churches like this support, you would you you come to realize that there are things that are not biblical. Uh, there are things that are contrary to Scripture. Uh, in fact, the very church that this sermon was was spoken at was preached at um, on that very stage. Lamar Lee himself said that somebody who does not speak in tongues or have the baptism of the Spirit, as they call it. Uh, anybody who doesn't have that, uh, that's like having a car with no battery. Um, so if you believe you're saved, but if you haven't received the Holy Spirit in the way that you speak in tongues, then you're dead. You, it's like a car with no battery. I actually asked Lamar Lee in person if he stood behind that statement. He said, yes, he absolutely stands behind that statement. So this is a church that teaches that people who don't speak in tongues it's like having a car with no battery. There's no there's no power. There's no drive. Okay, so just keep that in mind. The goal sounds noble. All Bible believing churches. That's a wonderful thing. But we have to ask the question if we're if we're if we're trying to be discerning, then we need to ask the question: Are all of the churches involved in this mission, this ministry? Are they all truly Bible believing, Bible believe, uh, Bible teaching? churches. What are they teaching? What are they preaching? So then he goes on to say, unity for the purpose of reaching the lost. Beautiful. Wonderful. I would, I just want to add to that. Obviously, I don't disagree with that. There's over a hundred churches in Baxley, but use any city, use Glenville where we're at. Any, any church that exists within a city and that city has multiple churches, all of the churches in that city, if those pastors really are seeking to equip the saints, preach and teach the word of God, then those saints ought to be being compelled to go out and share the gospel on their own. 
those saints should be equipped for the work of the ministry and should be going out uh, and sharing the hope of Christ wherever they go. Now, with that being said, let's just be honest. There's people that maybe they feel like they do need to be trained. There are some pastors that, you know, myself included, there's been times in my ministry where I haven't uh, urged the people strongly and reminded them and encouraged them, go out and share the gospel and training them and equipping them. Okay, yes, there are times where churches might lose focus of that. Uh, but at the end of the day, if the gospel is being preached, if there are true Christians in any particular area and those believers are being equipped for the work of the ministry, then this should be happening naturally. Now, if it is not happening naturally, is it, um, is it a good thing to, to seek help from the outside and say, hey, could you come help our churches? Could you come support our churches? And we, we're trying to get something going here. Sure, again, there's nothing wrong in and of itself with having a crusade, with having a rally, with having an event. Nobody's saying that these things are wrong. We're looking at the methodology, we're looking at what's going on behind the scenes, and we're looking at who, who or what are we actually trusting in to see the salvation of sinners. So we go on. He mentioned that one study found that he didn't name the study, he just, so I'm not I don't know. I haven't, I wasn't able to check the validity of this. 80% of Georgia, this area, he, he said this area in Georgia, but he also said Georgia, 80% of Georgia is unchurched. Okay. Well, that's a lot. That's a lot of Georgia that's unchurched. And then he said to the crowd, he said, your goal is to get the loss to the crusade. Okay. Well, number one, right there, we could say the goal, if we know that we are in an area that is highly unchurched, I understand he's saying get them to the crusade so that they can hear the gospel. But we also ought to be saying just share the gospel. Your goal is to share the gospel. There's 80% that is unchurched. We need to go and share the gospel with them. And he says your goal is to get them to the crusade, which again, to be fair and to be gracious, that makes sense. There's a crusade. They want a lot of people to come. There's nothing nefarious even about that. I would just point out, if we know that this many people are, are this amount of people is unchurched, the goal is to share the gospel. The goal is to proclaim Christ to them. But he says the goal is to get, get the lost to the crusade. Then he says, get them there if they've never experienced the new birth. Now that is where I do want to stop. If you have your Bible, open up to John 3, because this is where, this is where we're really getting to an area where there is going to be a breakdown in the methodology and where our faith lies. Because right here, and this would be a whole study in and of itself, what is the new birth? What brings about the new birth? But I, I want to make one clear remark on the new birth. Um, he says, get them there if they've never experienced the new birth. Now that obviously sets up the hope and it paints the picture that if you get them there, there's a really good chance they will experience the new birth. So at the very least, he's painting a picture that displays hope of the new birth for family members and friends or coworkers that we know haven't experienced the new birth. So it almost seems like it's a manipulation of the new birth. Like, hey, if you get them here, they'll probably get born again. And the distinction that I want to make on this, if even if it was unintentional, again, even if it's unintentional, the picture that he's painting when he says, Get them there if they've never experienced the new birth. 
the picture that he is painting is if you do get them there, there's a really good chance they will experience the new birth. The reason that this is an issue is because in John 3, uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 5, he said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This, of course, is after Jesus has told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus didn't really know what Jesus was saying. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who has been born of the Spirit. So my issue with this is we can't tell anybody, get if you've got lost family members or lost friends, get them to this place, get them to this event uh, if they've never experienced the new birth. Because we don't want to paint a false picture of hope that, whoa, well, if you get them to this event or if you get them here, the new birth will happen. Listen, the new birth is purely by the grace of God through the proclamation of the gospel. And yes, you can make the argument, well, the, the gospel is being spoken at these events. So maybe that's what they're alluding to. And again, to be gracious, sure, maybe that is what they're alluding to. But I think we'll find out later that's not what they're alluding to. And I think that becomes pretty clear. But I just want all of all of those who are listening or watching watching to be clear that in Scripture, it's plain. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We can't control the wind. We can't manipulate the wind. We can't manipulate the new birth. We can't we can't control the new birth. Okay, um, the new birth is not something that we manufacture or that we conjure up. The new birth is by the washing of the regeneration of the Spirit and is by the grace of God. So, so I, I'll just be blunt there and say, I really was not a fan when he said that. Get them there if they've never experienced the new birth. Um, so this is an opportunity for evangelism. Get your lost family there. That's not evangelism. Evangelism is not, hey, come with me to this event. Evangelism is, hey, here's the good news of Jesus Christ. Evangelism is sharing the gospel. But again, to be fair, I know that this is an event and I know that there was a big push. I understand why he's saying all these things. He's encouraging a church, get your people to this event. I just want to point out, evangelism is not inviting people to church. Evangelism is not inviting people to an event. Evangelism is sharing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. 85% of those who make decisions at crusades or, or otherwise are they are brought by someone else. So he's emphasizing the importance of bringing somebody with you. So 85% of people who make decisions were brought by someone else. And then he says this, He and, and I got to give credit where credit is due. He says this, he makes this comment. It's the gospel that changes people's lives. The gospel will be proclaimed each night at these events. My question to that is, what will be emphasized? Whatever is emphasized is what people are going to be encouraged to put their faith in, right? So whatever is emphasized is going to be what people actually put their faith in. So if the gospel is emphasized, if Christ is emphasized, praise be to God. But if it's a decision that's emphasized, if it's the will of man that's emphasized, then that's what people are going to put their faith in. And that's where the problem comes in. So Got to give credit where credit is due. He says plainly, it's the gospel that changes lives. The gospel will be proclaimed each night. So there you go. That is stated. We continue. He shares who's going to be speaking each night. Um, 
one Monday night, one guy that he said he's going to be speaking is Scott Camp. Uh, he described him as a Baptist and a Pentecostal. Uh, he said that he was at Brother Past. He said Pastor Parsley's church in Ohio. If I've done my correct research, Pastor Parsley re- refers to Rod Parsley, who is definitely a false teacher. Um, that's another podcast study for another time. But you can look up Rod Parsley and what he preaches and teaches. He was a student of Lester Sumrall. Um, so you can just do your research on that, but certainly a false teacher there. Now that's not Scott Camp, but Scott Camp spoke at Pastor Parsley's church. And so we would say there's a concern there. Um, Tuesday night, it's going to be Adrian Dupree. He was a chaplain uh, at, uh, I believe, the University of South Carolina as their chaplain over their football team. And Wednesday night is a youth night. There's going to be free food and they're giving away a car. Uh, Woody Folsom has agreed to donate a car on Wednesday night. Now, here's where it really starts to take off. I know I've already been talking for 20 minutes, but at this point, this is where I believe in my prayers that we'll start to plainly see what the trust is in, what the faith is actually in, and where it's misplaced. They're giving away a car, and there's going to be free pizza. And at this point in this It's not a sermon. I can't call it a sermon, which that's another gripe. He did not preach. Uh, This was just a presentation. This was a Sunday morning service where they gave a presentation. There was no sermon. um, But again, that's another issue for another time. But it does need to be noted here that there was no sermon. This was all just to build excitement for the crusade. But when he said there's going to be a free car there, there's going to be free pizza and a free car. He said, Rick Gage himself said, isn't that good bait? Now, in this podcast, I'm going to try to be uh, reserved with my emotions, but I will say, candidly, I was angered when I heard that. I was very upset when I heard that because that is manipulation. That is that is literally a bait and switch. We're going to bait them with this, and then we're going to sneak the gospel in. We're going to bait them with a car, and then we're going to switch it for the gospel. You don't win souls with a bait and switch technique. And if somebody says, oh, but that gets results, you have to ask yourself, what do those results look like in a month, in six months, in a year, in six years? What do those results look like? Are these people honestly making making decisions for the Lord and living a life that shows that they've been born again because they're bearing fruits of the Spirit? What do the results really look like? And I, and I know that just the other day, uh, somebody that... that uh, that made a profession of faith the last time that Rick Gage was in Baxley, 1998, he shared his testimony. And you say, oh, well, there there's some that really, really did get saved, but out of how many? What do the results really look like? Can there be people who are genuinely saved at an event like this? Of course, absolutely. God is gracious. God is merciful. God can save people in spite of all of these unbiblical methodologies, right? But the point is, We don't need to overlook the fact that this is wrong just because, well, sometimes people really do get saved. That doesn't mean you keep doing unbiblical practices just because every now and then people are really getting saved. That's not an excuse to continue to do things that are obviously blatantly wrong. So he himself says, isn't that good bait? So to his credit, at least he's being honest. He's not trying to hide anything. They are trying to bait people into coming to this crusade. They are using the bait and switch method. Then he says, I've had people say to me, you're just trying to manipulate and hook those kids into coming 
with the free food and a free car. You're trying to manipulate and hook the kids into coming to your event with free food and a free car. And he says, I say to them, you're exactly right. So again, credit where credit is due. He's up front. He's blunt. He's not hiding anything. He's openly saying, yes, that's exactly what we're doing. We're trying to manipulate and hook people into coming to our event because we know that once they're there, we're going to give the gospel to them. And many, many people at this point, you might be listening to this right now and saying, yeah, Caleb, what's the problem with that? Like whatever it takes to get them to listen to the gospel, we should employ all of those methods. And my simple question is this. What methods, what practices do we see exemplified in scripture by Jesus and his disciples? To ask it another way, if Jesus and the apostles were here with us today and we explained to them, hey, uh, we've got these plans. We're going to give away $3,000 worth of prizes. We're going to give away we're going to give away a car. We're going to we're going to do lots of exciting stuff to get people to show up. Then we're going to then we're going to give them the gospel. Um, do we honestly think that Jesus and the apostles would be like fully on board with that and say, hey, guys, that's a great idea. That's a great plan. We should definitely do that. I don't think so. And you may disagree with that, but I would say study the scriptures, look at the words, see what we have exemplified for us, and really give that question some careful consideration. What methodologies? When before Paul went to a before before Paul went to a new city to proclaim the gospel, before Paul went back to a city where he had already proclaimed the gospel, did he tell them to raise a certain amount of money before he came back? to raise a certain amount of money and then he would come train the people uh, to, to get all these prizes and get all these events together and make all these plans and then he would come? Or did he just go and proclaim the truth? Or did he just go and edify the saints in the area? Or did he just go and edify the saints in the area and continue to preach the gospel? What's the biblical model? Even when, if you want to use, well, Jesus performed miracles wherever he went. Right, but that's not, that's it's not quite the same as just giveaways. We're going to give away tons and tons of stuff. This is, Jesus went around healing people to show that he really was who he said he was. He is the son of God. He was the Messiah. He was the anointed one, the Christ. He is the only one who had the power to, to heal and, and to forgive sins. So there's a big difference there. After he says, you're exactly right, we are trying to do that. He says, the devil is also trying to hook them too. Okay, boom. We don't, no qualms there, right? If you want to use that language, Satan is after our youth, or if you just want to say plainly, well, we're all born in sin, we're sinners, we're all naturally inclined to rebel against God, or however you want to word it, the bottom line is, of course, there's distractions and there's things all over the world that are that's hooking our young people. And he lists drugs, alcohol, suicide, sex, so on and so forth. But I want us to understand what happened here is he's trying to justify the fact that he is using the bait and switch method. He's justifying it by bringing up all of these other really bad things, drugs, alcohol, sex. What, what do you want your children hooked on? Would you rather them get hooked with free food and a free car to come hear the gospel? Or do you want them hooked on drugs and alcohol. And so he's using a false dichotomy like it's one or the other. He's using that to justify the error. He's using that to justify their unbiblical methodologies 
to get people to come hear the gospel. So I just want I just want us to be aware of what's going on there. He's using a true example. Yeah, there's lots of stuff our kids could get hooked on. And he's using that truth to justify the unbiblical practice or the unbiblical um, method. And again, just ask the simple question, what did Jesus and his disciples, what methods did they exemplify for us? Did Jesus and his disciples have to go around stirring up a good time and giving away a lot of free stuff to get people to listen to him? Or did they just go proclaim the gospel? Food for thought. Then he shares a William Booth quote. And he says, if you were to ask me, what's the biggest problem in churches today? I would tell you, we have lost our passion for lost souls. Now, I, I agree. We should have a passion for lost souls. We should be zealous with that. And I, I've already stated that I think there's many churches that we would do well to try to fan that flame and get that zeal back um, with our passion for lost souls. But just for fun, if you were to ask me, if you were to ask Caleb, what's the biggest problem in churches today? I would say we've lost our passion for God's glory. We've lost our passion to honor and glorify God with all that we say and do. We've lost our passion to see him exalted and lifted up. We've lost our passion for God's glory in all things, in the way that we preach, in the way that we worship, in the way that we do church. We've lost our passion for God's glory alone. Then he says, um, he, he saw a study, and I think he said just last year, again, I would encourage you go back and listen to the sermon, fact check me on all this stuff. I think he said just last year, there was 11,000 churches listed that had no salvations. 11,000 churches that couldn't report any salvation. So no decisions for the Lord, 11,000 churches. Now that's a big number and that's a number that grabs our attention. Understandably so. But anytime this comes up, anytime somebody throws stats out, um, it's a good practice to, to really consider, well, well how, did the, how did we get to that number? Why are they listing that number? What's the point here? So he just said the biggest problem is, is lack of zeal for lost souls. Now he's giving statistics that are going to prove or solidify that churches have lost their passion for lost souls. 11,000 churches, no salvations. Now, at first blush, we would say, yeah, that's, that's a huge problem. 11,000 churches with no decisions for salvation, that does kind of seem like an issue. But that's just the simple, straightforward fact. What if, just to, just to think through this, what if there are churches out there that the preacher really is preaching the word, preaching the gospel, and the people of that church really are going out and they're, they're seeking to share the gospel, they're seeking to win souls for the lost, but over the course of a year at that particular church, nobody made a decision for Christ. Nobody made a profession of faith at that church that somebody could mark and keep track of. Does that mean that through that church's ministry, nobody is being led to Christ? That through that church's ministry, nobody is coming to salvation? Well, that's quite a stretch. And just because it didn't happen that year doesn't mean that there's no fruits of that ministry. So that's one, that's one thing to consider. Another thing to consider is, yes, maybe perhaps there are many, many churches they are not trying to win the loss. And I would say, I agree. That's a problem. If you say, Caleb, are you saying you disagree with that? Absolutely not. I agree. If there are churches out there that are not concerned for the loss, yes, that's a problem. What's the solution? 
preach the gospel. For the pastors that are at those churches, preach the gospel. Preach the truth. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that they will go out into the community and share the gospel, share the truth for God's glory, and God will bring the increase. Another thing to consider is just because a profession of faith wasn't made at a church or wasn't tracked by a church, again, does not mean that that church is not bearing fruit or that that ministry is not bearing fruit, right? This actually, to me, points out another big issue within modern Christendom, American Christendom, that leads us to place our faith in something other than the true gospel. And that is number crunching. We are a people that love success and we love to be able to track our success. Because we love to be able to track our success, we crunch numbers. What's an easy way to crunch numbers? What's an easy way to figure out the success of a ministry? Well, if we can, if we have hard numbers on people who are making decisions through a ministry, then we can track our success better. Well, what's, an, what's the easiest way to track how many people are making decisions? If we can get them to raise their hand, or maybe we can get them to stand up. Maybe we can, e- maybe we can even get them to come forward. Maybe we can get them to hang out after the service and say, hey, if you made a decision today, we need you to hang back. We've got some information for you. And all of these things work to make it a whole lot easier for us to get a head count. And if we can get a head count, we can track success. If the head count's low, we need to make improvements. If the head count is high, we're doing really good. We need to keep the train rolling. And it's all about crunching numbers. Therefore, if churches don't have decisions, they're not successful. And there's a problem. If churches have high decisions, it's automatically labeled a success. If a ministry has high decisions, it's already labeled a success simply by the fact that we're crunching numbers and this ministry has a lot of people responding, but this ministry over here has very few people responding. So which one's more successful? If we are out to gauge success, success that we can measure, that's tangible, that's visible, we will end up putting our faith and putting our confidence in something other than the true gospel. Because as the gospel goes out, the spiritual work of God within his people, the spiritual work of God drawing men and women to salvation isn't always immediately visible. It's not tangible. It's not something we can put our hands on and say, okay, let's crunch these numbers and let's let's do the research and let, let's... Uh, uh, let's um, let's do the study to see how we can track our ministry and uh, let's see where all this is connected and how we're doing. You can't do that. You have to just proclaim the gospel, preach the truth, and trust that God is doing what he said he would do. So numbers like this, me personally, I don't get too worked up about them. If there is 11, even if there's 1,100 churches out there that aren't winning souls and they're not concerned about it, yes, that's a problem. That is a problem. But numbers like this, they're just numbers. They're just statistics. He goes from 11,000 with no decisions to 25,000 with no teenagers making decisions. Okay, so what he's going to do here, he started with no salvations, no decisions. Then he's going to limit that by saying teenagers. Now he's going to limit it by saying ages 18 to 35. And notice what happens. Each time you limit it, each time you're working with a different group of people, the number, on the one hand, the number grows. 
On the other hand, you're narrowing, you're limiting the people that you're working with. So as that number gets smaller, the number of people who aren't getting saved gets bigger. So 11,000 churches with no salvations or no decisions, 25,000 churches with no teenagers getting saved, 35,000 churches with no salvation decisions from the ages of 18 to 35. Here's the problem with these numbers. Those 35,000 churches with no salvation decisions in that age bracket, there's probably decisions, salvations outside of those age brackets. So why is that such a big deal? Those churches are winning souls. So they don't fit the problem that Rick Gage created by saying the biggest problem is we have churches that aren't winning souls. Now it's, well, they're winning souls, but they're not winning souls in the right age bracket. Right, so trying to create a problem, trying to convince you that there's this big problem so that so that we can work on it together. There's this really big problem, it's really bad, and we need to get serious about it. We need to try to fix it. And, and again, to be gracious, with, with his type of ministry, his ministry hinges on that. We've got to be convinced there's a really big problem and we've got to work together to fix it. So he says the greatest thing we can do <clears throat> is to lead someone to Christ. The second greatest thing we can do is equip people to be a witness for Christ. So again, just building on this thought of we need to be a soul winner. You need to be a soul winner. We need to go out and win souls together. So back to one of the key questions. How do you win souls? What is the power of God unto salvation? What does a person have to do to be saved? Where does that power come from? We have to answer these questions because if we answer those questions wrongly, then we're going to develop wrong strategies and wrong methods on how to bring about those results. To be a soul winner, you simply share the gospel. The sovereign God of all creation who has authority over the hearts and minds of man will bring sons and daughters to salvation, period. It's just that simple. But if being a soul winner is getting people to make a decision at a particular moment and getting them to pray a prayer or getting them to raise their hand so that we can keep track of our success, then we're going to employ some very unbiblical methodologies. <clears throat> a few minutes later in the sermon, he shares his personal testimony. He was a football coach. He was a successful football coach. He says, God got a hold of my heart. He had no devotion in his life. He was a million miles from God. And it was as if he heard God tell him, this is your last chance. If you don't surrender your life tonight, there will be no other chance for you to surrender your life. So he says, if I wouldn't have done business with God that night, I'd be in hell. I had an encounter with God that I've never forgotten. I gave my life to Christ and I've surrendered. I told everybody about it. I told everybody about it. Now, the statement, if I wouldn't have done business with God, I'd be in hell. I'll say this. I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with that statement. He said it was as if God was telling him, this is your last chance. In the moment of conversion, in the moment of salvation, when we're fully aware of our sin, when we're fully burdened by our sin, yes, there is an urgency. I have got to go to Christ, okay? So 
And, and when we're trying to explain those emotions and, and trying to explain to people what's going on in our mind and, and, and how we're processing these emotions during the midst of, of everything that's going on, yeah, we're going to put it in our own words. And so I'm, I'm not here to nitpick what he's, what he's saying there. If he wouldn't have done business with God that night, he'd be in hell. But here's the thing. That's the way it works with everyone that God brings to salvation. When God is drawing someone to Christ, when God is drawing someone to salvation, they become fully aware of their guilt and their shame. And God has granted them repentance. And God has given them salvation. They have received that new birth. And they, they see their sin clearly and they run to Christ and they cling to Christ. So that's it. He says the gospel was, was shared that night and he knew that that was his night, that that was his time to get right with God, so to speak, to use that language. I use it loosely. And he's never gotten over that encounter with God. But the power is in the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings people to the knowledge of their own sin and their need of a savior. That's it. At this point, and I, and I do want to point this out, he did use scripture sparingly throughout his talk. And he brought up 2 Peter 3, 9. And so I do want to go to 2 Peter 3 uh, and just point this out. This is a verse that is often misquoted. Um, the context of 2 Peter, Peter is writing to the church. He's writing to the people of God. And he ultimately, he's writing to the elect. Now, we don't know who the elect are. But the elect are the elect of God. They're there. Uh, it's a biblical doctrine. And so he's writing to the church. And he says in 2 Peter 3, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the prediction of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, so the body of Christ, believers, uh, the, the called of God, the chosen of God, that, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the context of these verses is talking to the chosen of God, the called of God, the elect of God. God is not willing that any of his chosen people perish and they never will. He used this verse to, to signify God's not willing that anybody should perish. And not to dwell too long on this, I'm just gonna point out plainly what, what the issue with, with that um, stance is. If we take 2 Peter 3, 9 to just mean as a blanket statement, God's not willing that anyone should perish, then nobody's ever going to hell. Nobody is ever going to perish. If God is not willing that anybody perish, then nobody would ever perish. 
God is willing that the unrepentant sinner perish. Okay? But God is not willing that any of his chosen people, that any of his elect people should perish. That's the context of 2 Peter 3, 9. So again, I know on Facebook, this video is going in and out, or at least it's telling me it's going in and out a lot. So I would ask of you to listen to the podcast later. Uh, it's on Christianity Proper, um, the podcast, and you can find that on any podcast platform that's out there. So then he says that he made a commitment with God. He wanted God to make him a soul winner. Uh, and then he, he, he made this as a side comment. And I'll be honest, it was a bit confusing to me. I'm, I'm not throwing it out. I'm not just saying, oh, he was telling a fib. But, but it caught me off guard because he said, I've actually met pastors who have never led anybody to Christ. You can see why the statement caught me off guard. But all I'll say is if, if there's pastors out there who are honestly saying like they've, they've never led somebody to the Lord or never seen somebody come to salvation through the preaching of the gospel, there again, it's still just a statistic. And in this case, it's a personal statistic. I've, ne I've met pastors who have never won anybody to Christ. Um, and, and again, it's just building that. But it's just one of those statements that it's kind of like, hmm. Really, you've met pastors, and if that is true, obviously pastors, you know, you should you should be out there trying to win souls as well. But then he says this: the devil wins, Satan wins, when we lose the value of a soul. And he's going to come back to that quote in a minute. But he said he was he he was talking to somebody they they were he was on his way with a part of with a group that they were going to witness, they were going to to win souls. But he was talking to somebody before the event actually started. And he asked this guy, if you died today, do you know where you'd be? Well, right out of the gate. That's one of the most popular soul winning strategies that is employed today. That's not that's not a way to set up the gospel. I mean, biblically speaking, that's just not a, does it work at times? Sure, but we don't want to be pragmatists who just utilize whatever works. Like you don't set up the gospel by saying, if you died right now, do you know where you'd be? The gospel is, look, Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Here's the testimony of Jesus Christ. Here's the good news of Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin. He lived a spotless, sinless life. He died upon the cross for sins, as it is written in the scriptures. He was buried, risen on the third day, according to the scriptures. All who believe in him will be saved. Do you believe that testimony to be true? Do you acknowledge that Jesus is Lord? Like that's the gospel. But here we go. We start with it. If you died right now, do you know where you'd go? Do you know if you'd be in heaven right now if you died? Okay. So of course the guy tells him, nah, not sure. So he says, I led him through the Romans road. I showed him some scripture. And right there before the event even started, he bowed his, he said he bowed his heart. I believe he just misspoke. He bowed his head and he asked Jesus to come into his heart or come into his life. And I have to ask, and some of you may, may think that I'm nitpicking, that's fine. All I'm asking is that we give this consideration. Even if you disagree with me, even if you think that I'm crazy, please, I'm just asking that you would take time to give this consideration and really think through it. If somebody doesn't know where they be when they die, and our solution to that is to run through some scriptures with them and then tell them, you need to ask Jesus into your life. Is that the gospel? Is that the good news of Jesus Christ and the command to repent? No. Asking Jesus into your heart is honestly, it's totally different than saying believe, repent and believe. 
asking Jesus into your heart, giving your heart to Jesus, that's like a totally different concept. And I will add, again, you'll never find that phrase in scripture. Jesus gives us a new heart. We have a new life. We're, we're made a new creature through salvation. But never, ever, not even once, was anybody encouraged in scripture to ask Jesus into their heart. It's not there. Why are we so passionate about unbiblical methodologies? Why isn't it enough to just say, here's the gospel, here's the good news of Jesus Christ, all who believe are saved, all who do not believe are condemned. Do you believe this to be an accurate account? Do you believe this to be the truth pertaining Jesus Christ? See how simple that is. But if we say, ask him into your heart, give your life to Jesus, surrender, surrender your life to Jesus, you've got to be serious about it. You need to be serious. Did you really do business with God? All of those things were complicating the gospel. And we're also putting the spotlight on the individual. Did you do it? Were you serious about it? Did you really do business with God? Did you mean it? Were you sincere? We're encouraging that person, whether it's intentional or not, we are encouraging that person to focus on themselves and to put their faith in themselves. So then he, then he said he led him in a prayer. And so I wrote down in my notes, leading someone to Christ equals prayer. Based upon that testimony that he himself shared, I asked somebody if he knew where he was going when he died. He said, no, I shared the Romans road with him. He bowed his head and asked Jesus into his heart. God used me to lead a soul to Christ. So leading someone to Christ equals getting someone to say the prayer or ask Jesus into their heart. That's a problem. That's a problem. If we think about, if we think about winning souls as a formula like that, well, I got somebody to say a prayer with me. I got somebody to ask Jesus into their heart. Is that really the gospel? Is that winning souls? Or is that calling people to make a decision? The power of man can get people to make decisions, but only the power of God through the gospel can save sinners. Then he went back to that quote, Satan was defeated on the cross. Satan was fully defeated on the cross, but he wins when we lose the value of a soul. Satan wins when we lose the value of a soul. Now, to be gracious, again, I'm not here to nitpick everything the guy said. I get what he's saying. I do understand what he's saying. He know, he acknowledges that Satan has been defeated. What he means is, if we as believers aren't trying to win souls, then yes, to some degree, you could say Satan's winning or you know, he's got us fooled. If, if we're convinced that it's not that important for us to go out and win souls, then yes, we've been duped. We've been tricked. We've been bamboozled, right? So I get what he's saying, okay? Um, but it's not that Satan wins. It, ultimately, it's that we're not being obedient to Christ. And you can say, well, that's Satan winning. Okay, fine, I'll let you have it. We're not being obedient. We are meant to be obedient, to the word of God. And in the word we're told to, we are told to go win souls. We're told to make disciples of all the nations. So we need to be obedient to that. And if if we have actually come to know Christ, then we should be zealous to do that. We should want to see sinners come to salvation. Paul told Timothy, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. The word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation, which is in Jesus Christ. We should endure all things 
We should keep proclaiming the gospel, endure whatever we have to endure for the sake of the elect that they too would come to salvation. So then he shared this testimony of this young girl who was, um, who shared that her father was unsaved. Uh, he was an alcoholic. And here Rick Gage says that they, they claimed Matthew 18 verse 19. And this is a common practice, but here again, this is a misuse of scripture. So this is the second time that this is a clear misuse of scripture here. Matthew 18, 19 says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. And the verse above that says, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now this this is a popular passage that is used by many to say, well, we're, we're claiming this promise of God. We're going to bind something or we're going to lose something, but where two or three are gathering and if we agree on it, if we come together in agreement, God's going to cause it to happen. The issue with that is this is a passage on church discipline. Uh, this is a passage on how to handle a brother who is in the wrong. Matthew 18 verse 15 says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So this is about church discipline specifically. When somebody refuses to listen to even the church, they are to be disfellowshipped or excommunicated, if you will. And Jesus is saying, so it, it, if you decide to cut ties with somebody, then it'll be that way in heaven. If you cut ties with somebody, if, if they are loosed from the fellowship, they're loosed in heaven. If they are bound within the fellowship, they're bound in heaven. And then he says, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done. So it's a passage on church discipline. It's not a passage about just coming together in agreement and agreeing on anything. Okay? Like anything and everything. It's, it's within the church. Church discipline, church matters. When, when the church, the body of Christ is operating and functioning as it, as it ought to be. That, that's the context here. Nevertheless, the testimony ends on a joyful note. Uh, he says that the father did come forward, I believe, the next night and make a profession of faith. The issue with this is, to go back to the passage of scripture, what about the times where they've claimed this passage where somebody didn't come to faith? And the fact of the matter is, whether anybody would admit it or not, there's been many times that people have claimed this verse and people haven't come to salvation or people have claimed this verse and what they were claiming and what they were agreeing upon didn't actually come to pass. So that disproves the whole thing right there. So the question to Rick Gage would be, what about the times where y'all claimed that verse where the person you were praying for didn't come to salvation the next night or didn't come to salvation during the event? Doesn't that disprove your usage of Matthew 18, 19? Something to consider there. Then he brings up Luke 15, verse seven, about the fact that heaven rejoices over one soul who is saved. Amen, amen. Nothing to add there.
Wonderful. But then he goes on to say, because the rest of the verse says there's more, there's more joy or more celebration over one soul that comes to repentance than over a hundred who, who need no repentance. And the analogy or the connection that Rick Gage makes is that so, so there's more celebration in heaven over one soul that is saved over a Bible study that a hundred people come to. And, and he says, you know, Bible studies, a hundred people coming to Bible studies, that doesn't make heaven celebrate like one soul being saved doesn't. Again, I get what he's saying, but why would you, why, why is that the thing you want to pick at? <laughs> why, why do you want to pick at a Bible study with a hundred folks in it? Like, why is that the thing that you want to go after, right? So another interesting choice there, I would say. And then he shares another testimony about this guy who says, I came up to this event and I was stoned when I got here tonight. I just want to thank you because I'm leaving here with Jesus in my heart. I want to thank you for saving me. And Rick Gage says to him, well, I didn't save you. Only Jesus can save. Jesus has saved you. And the guy says to Rick Gage, well, Jesus was having a really hard time until you came along. Now, Rick Gage didn't say that he corrected that or, or he said anything to that. He just went to his next point. And his next point was, we might be surprised at how many people are ready to give their hearts to Christ. They're just waiting on us to come along and give them the gospel. Well, two things. Number one, and I'll start with a way that I could say, I almost agree, almost agree. There's a similarity here to an actual biblical passage, John 10. In John 10, Jesus says he's the good shepherd. He knows his sheep and his sheep know him. But then he also says, I've got other sheep that aren't of this fold. I must bring them in and they will listen to me. Later in the text, he tells the, the Jewish people that he's talking with, he says, you don't, you don't believe me or, or you don't, yeah, you don't hear, you don't believe me because you're not among my sheep. Now, if we use that passage as a platform to say, okay, are there people out there that when they hear the gospel, they will respond in faith because they are the people that were given to Christ before the foundation of the world. They're going to hear the gospel and respond to it positively because they are the sheep. They, they're going to recognize the voice of their shepherd and they are going to follow. Yes, if we look at it that way, we could say, okay, there are people out there that will come to faith if we go out there and share the gospel with it because that's how God has ordained it to work. So I wanted to start there in a way that there's almost some agreement, but there's definitely not agreement with the phrasing of, you'd be surprised how many people are out there who are ready to give their hearts to Christ and so on and so forth. No, Romans, Romans 3, Paul is clear. There's, there's none that pursues righteousness. There's none good. No, not one. There's none righteous. None, none that pursues God, right? We're, we're all, um, we've all gone astray. In fact, just to, just to read the passage rather than try to, try to quote it. Well, I might not be able to read it. I lost a page out of my Bible the other day and here it is. I thought I brought it with me. Here's the page that fell out of my Bible the other day. So Romans chapter three, verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. 
No one does good, not even one. So that's where the disagreement would come. What do we think of the natural man? Is the natural man wanting to run to God or wanting to run away from God? And at that point, I would point back to the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, did they run to God or did they run and hide from God and try to fix the problem themselves? The answer is they hid from God and it's been the same ever since. Human nature is to run away from God, to hide in the shadows, to go the opposite direction of God. So no, I don't think that we would be surprised that there's people out there just waiting, just itching to give their lives to Jesus because that's not how it works. However, with the power of the true gospel, there will be those out there that even if they're not, even if they're not sitting there saying, I want to follow God right now, I want to do it. when they hear the gospel, if they were given to Christ before the foundation of the world, they're going to hear the gospel and they're going to say, that's the voice of my shepherd. That's the voice of Jesus. I need to follow him. And they will come to faith. Then he quoted John 3, 16. And he, again, I think this was, this was a slip. I'm not saying he did it on purpose, but it was interesting. He misquoted John 3, 16. And he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever surrenders their soul will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, I'm not saying he did it on purpose, but whether or not he did it on purpose or not, that is very telling that that's what the slip of the tongue brought about. Because the verse says, whoever believes, which is the true gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and all who believe are saved. The problem is we tell people, if you surrender, if you ask Jesus into your heart, if you give your life to Jesus, if, if you do this, if you do that, if you pray this prayer, if you're sincere, that's the problem. And now the problem has actually slipped in to misquoting John 3, 16. Whoever surrenders their soul will never perish, but have everlasting life. That is not what the verse says. So whether it was intentional or unintentional, it's very telling what got slipped in to John 3, 16 at that point. Then he says, people are waiting for a clear gospel presentation. And I actually wrote in my notes, I put, amen. And then I wrote, give them one. Give them one. Telling someone that if you ask Jesus into your heart, you'll be saved. Telling someone if you pray this prayer, you'll be saved. Telling someone you need to repent. You do need to believe. And this is how you do it. Ask Jesus into your heart. Do this or do that. Telling someone that is not a clear presentation of the gospel. A clear presentation of the gospel is simply saying Christ has come. He laid down his spotless, sinless life as a sacrifice for the sins of all who believe. He was buried. He's risen again. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's coming back in glory. Do you believe that to be an accurate testimony of who Jesus Christ is? Do you acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, right? Everybody loves to quote, to quote from Romans 10. If you uh, believe in your heart and profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he's risen from the dead, right? That's the gospel. Do you believe it? not pray this prayer. Were you serious about it? Did you do business with God? Do you, need to, uh, do you need to ask Jesus into your heart? Do you need to fully surrender your life? That's not a clear gospel presentation. So I agree with what he said. People are waiting. People need a clear gospel presentation. Amen. Let's give it to them. And we give it to them by using the scriptures and utilizing the methods that are given to us 
in scripture. Then the altar call begins. And he encourages everyone, it, it was a church service and he encourages everyone there to examine themselves. And to that I say, amen. Paul gives that uh, exhortation in, in, in Corinthians. He tells the Corinthian church to examine yourselves to see whether or not you're of the faith. And so that's the first part. He said, examine yourself. If you're here today and you know that you're saved, raise your hand. Which if you're familiar with altar calls, which if you live here in the Bible Belt, you're probably very familiar with altar calls. You and I, we have all heard pastors say, every head bowed, or yeah, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today and you know that you're saved, if you could just slip that hand up. Or, so it starts out as a typical altar call because it is a typical altar call. Then he says, how many of you don't have peace? How many of you couldn't raise your hand just then? So here's where we get into, now that we're at the altar call, we're, we're really, we're gonna see where the differences shine, right? Because the true gospel is, here's the testimony of Christ. Do you believe it? Do you see your need of repenting from your sins and placing your faith in Jesus today? Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the one and only savior of the world, that he's your savior? Do you believe that? Then you're saved. But that's not good enough for us. We, we use altar calls and the altar calls last for 10, 20, 30 minutes. And we beg people to come forward. And we ask them all these questions that are not, do you believe? So I want, we're talking about a clear gospel presentation. We're talking about making it simple, right? What, what, what is more simple? Coming to the end and saying, if you're here today and you see your need of salvation, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man and he is your only hope of salvation? Do you believe today that Jesus is who he says he is? Then you're saved. That's pretty simple, right? I did that in maybe 10 seconds. Or is this more simple? Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today and you know that you're saved, if you could just slip that hand up for me real quick. I see them all over the I see them all over the house. Oh, thank you for that hand. Thank you for that hand. Beautiful sight, beautiful sight. Now, if you do not have peace, what is that? How is that? Do you do we see how that's not? Do you believe? If you don't have peace today, and you say, I don't want to go to hell. No, the question is, do you believe? The question is not, do you want to go to hell? The question is not, do you want to go to heaven? The question is, do you believe? But again, that's not good enough for us. He says, if you're here today and you say, I don't know what would happen to me tonight if I were to die. I don't know what would happen to me if I would get in a car wreck and die. But I know this, brother Rick, I don't want to go to hell. I want to make sure today that I'm right with God. Then he says, then he says, or if you're here today and you say I'm saved, but I'm not a witness for Christ like I ought to be. I'm not as zealous as I ought to be. You can raise your hand. So you see, it's just an abundance of questions. I'm gonna get you to raise your hand. I'm gonna get you to raise your hand. I'm gonna get you to come forward. I'm gonna get you to come forward. And it's just piling on the questions after questions. But none of those questions were, do you believe? Even to the even to the believers. If you say, Brother Rick, I'm here today and I know that I'm saved because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and I believe that he is Lord. If you're here today, slip up your hand. If you want... Like, if we wanted to employ that methodology, like that would be the thing. If you're here today and you know that you're saved by grace through your faith and through faith in Jesus Christ, then raise your hand. It's just that simple. 
If you're here today and you don't have peace, if you're here today and you're unsettled, if you're here today, do you believe? So he asked all these questions and then he says, okay, if you raise your hand, I want you to look up at me and I want you to come down. And then again, to give credit where credit is due. He says this plainly, okay? I'm not, again, I'm not here to slander or try to make it seem worse than it is. He said this plainly. I want to be clear on that. Just because you got up out of your seat and you came forward does not get you to heaven. What gets a person to heaven is when we repent and surrender our hearts to Christ. Okay, but I want to point this out too. He said repent, but again, he didn't say, but he said when we repent and surrender our hearts to Christ, telling somebody surrender, what does that even mean? I mean, you could, we could honestly ask that question. What does that mean, surrendering your heart to Christ? How is that more simple than telling somebody believe? Surrender your heart to Christ or believe? Which one is easier to understand? Which one is more simple? Which one's more straightforward? Believe, surrender your heart to Christ. We are saved when we repent and surrender our hearts to Christ. Why not say we are saved when we repent and believe? But he did say that clearly. He told them just because you came forward doesn't mean that you're saved. But earlier in this podcast, I know I've been going over an hour at this point, but if you remember all the way back, um, I made the comment that what is the emphasis on? Because whatever the emphasis is on is really what people are probably going to end up putting their faith in. Where's the emphasis? So he says this, and that took all of about 30 seconds or so for him to get through. All the rest of this sermon and all the rest of this altar call has been do you need to get right with God? Do you not want to go to hell? Do you want to, uh, do you have things that you need to get straightened out? Do you want to get serious with God today? Do you want to do business with God today? And then he throws in this little tidbit of this isn't what saves you, repentance. And he says, surrendering your heart to Christ, but the gospel is repent and believe it, or the gospel includes repent and believe. But then he then he kind of started to, to talk again and he said, look, I'm not, he, he said, I don't care if you're black, white, male, female, but then he, he says, everybody needs to repent. And um, but then he grouped, he said, I don't care if you're Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, Pentecostal or Baptist. And I just, I wrote some question marks there because again, it's, you know, just being honest, I, sometimes when you get up there and you're preaching and, and you kind of get into a pocket where you're, you are just, um, you shouldn't be riffing. Um, that's not the right word, but you're, you're trying to get to a point or you're trying to make a point. Sometimes you do, you do slip up and, and, and ideas are going through your mind at such a fast clip that sometimes you combine things that you don't need to combine or you don't even intend to combine. And so perhaps that's what's going on here. Um, when he grouped together Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Pentecostals, and Baptists, I don't, I'm pretty positive Rick Gage doesn't believe that Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness are just different denominations of Christianity. If he does think they're different denominations of Christianity, then we've got bigger problems than I am even covering in this podcast. But I don't think that's what he meant. I just wrote question marks by that because that was just something very interesting that he did. He grouped all of those four together. Then he goes on to say, I don't even know if Brother Lamar is saved. And Brother Lamar Lee is the pastor at Church of God. He says, I don't know that he's saved because I don't know his heart, but I can't expect his fruit. So then he made a point about, we need to be producing fruit. We need to make sure that we're actually growing and so on and so forth. 
And then he came back to the altar call and he said, I'm not sure if I'm saved. I want us, I want us to be sure. If you say, I'm not sure that I'm saved, I want us to be sure tonight. You can know that you're saved. And he quotes from 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, which again, those verses specifically are written to people who already believe they're a part of the household of God. And so he's, he's making a, a point there that if you're, if you're saved, you can know it because in 1 John, it says, I've written these things so that you may know and that your joy may be full. And um, so he makes that point there and we should. Believers can know that we're saved and we should have that confidence. We should have that assurance. But again, where's the emphasis? We get that confidence. We get that assurance from Christ and what he has done. If we get that confidence, if we say, well, I know that I'm saved because I got serious with the Lord one night. I did business with God one night. I know that I'm saved because of a decision that I made one night at such and such a place or such and such a time. Then our confidence is not in the right place. It's in ourselves, which these methodologies, my argument is that these methodologies put the emphasis on man. Was I sincere? Did I mean it? Did I really get saved? Well, was I serious about it? Did I pray that prayer? Did I ask Jesus into my heart? If I meant it, then I'm saved. It forces us to look inward rather than upward to Christ. And that, that's the big issue with all of this. These methodologies, ultimately, the emphasis isn't on Christ. The emphasis on, is on what you did. Did you get serious? Did you make a commitment? Did you make a decision? And so he says, I want you to know, and he says, pray this prayer. If your desire is to be born again, pray this prayer. Well, there again, we don't, we don't control the new birth. The new birth is like the wind. You know it's there. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes, but you know it's there. So it is with those who are born of the spirit. We can't look at somebody and say, you were just born again. Because you did this, you just got born again. We don't control the new birth. We can't manipulate the new birth. But nevertheless, that's what he says. If you want to be born again, you pray this prayer. Lord, I believe that you're the son. I believe you died. That you were buried, that you were risen again. I invite you to become my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me and saving me today. Now, he called that a prayer of repentance. He said, pray this prayer of repentance with me. Lord, I believe you are the son. I believe you died. I believe you're buried and risen again. I invite you to become my Lord and Savior today. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me and saving me. And the insinuation was, if you prayed that prayer, you got right with God today. So again, I ask, what is the emphasis on? The emphasis is on, the emphasis is on did you pray that prayer? Did you mean that prayer? If you want to get right with God today, if you don't want to go to hell when you die, say this prayer, and if you meant it, you're saved. That's a problem. That's the problem. When the emphasis is on our decisions and our actions and the emphasis is not on Christ, that's a problem. It is misleading people. Whether we intend it to or not, we are actually complicating the gospel and we are putting people's focus on off of Christ and on themselves, which is literally, the it's an anti-gospel. It's anti-Christ. It's a big deal what we're doing here. It's a problem. 
And all the uh, for, for everyone, myself included, when we say, well, you know, there's a lot of people leaving the church. People don't come. People don't even come to church like they used to come to church. People don't want to hear about the gospel. People don't want to hear about Jesus. Uh, even people who call themselves Christians, they don't really seem to want to live for God or anything. I wonder what the issue with that is. Maybe the issue is that for years, I know all of my adult life, or not my adult life, all my life period, I'm 33. For 33 years of my life, the number one set of methodologies and strategies that people have used to win souls is what we're talking about right here. Pray a prayer, ask Jesus into your heart. You're saved. You don't want to go to hell? Say this prayer. And maybe, maybe the reason that so many people are abandoning the faith, jumping ship, maybe the reason that so many pastors and church folks are now celebrating things that God abhors is because we were telling unregenerate, unsaved people that they got saved because they made a decision. And we were encouraging people to look at themselves for their salvation. We hid it under the, under the disguise, under the umbrella of Christ, because we, we shared the gospel with them real quick. But really, we were making sure that they were serious and that they meant business with God. And so we forced them to look inward. And now, the God that they worship really just looks like them because that is the God that they worship, but they're convinced they're fully saved because of methodologies like this. Maybe, just maybe, if we went back to proclaiming the simple gospel and just calling people to repentance and faith, we would get a lot more true converts because it's the power of God saving them and not the power of man causing others to make decisions. Now, with that being said, we would, we would have to stop crunching numbers and stop looking at the results and just trust and obey God and have faith that he is saving, that he's not willing that any of his chosen people perish, and so they won't, and he is drawing men to salvation. We'd have to change a lot of other things if we went back to just preaching and teaching the simple gospel. But I would say plainly, that's exactly what we need to do. We need to repent of all of this stuff and go back to scripture. So um, he said, so there's that prayer. And then he goes immediately into, today I turn my back on sin and I surrender my all to you, Jesus. If you just invited Christ into, if you just invited Christ into your heart and you meant it, praise the Lord. Okay. So if you invited Christ into your heart and you meant it, so if you did that, if you said, I turn my back on sin and I surrender my all to you, and you just invited Jesus into your life and you meant it, praise God. At that point, he asked Lamar Lee to come up on the stage there. And Lamar said, I'm, I'm proud of those who gave their life to Jesus today. So again, that's not even, I'm proud of those who gave their life to Jesus. The gospel is that Jesus gives us life, but I digress. Lamar made a little quip because earlier Rick Gage had said, I don't even know if Lamar saved. And so Lamar said, I'm, I'm glad that Rick Gage kept talking and talking about fruit because he said, I am saved today. And then that he says, I am saved today. And he says, because I got plugged in. And he made that comment. He said, for those of you who are here today, I hope you get plugged in. I hope you get connected uh, to resources and other people who can help you grow and everything else. I'm glad that Rick Gage said what he said afterwards because I am saved today because I got plugged in 
and so on and so forth. That was a very interesting thing to say. Um, and again, I think a very telling thing to say. I think at times our end goal is just to get people in church and get them involved. Uh, and at times we're, we're just simply not focused on God and his glory. And we're not truly focused on the soul of the sinner and praying and, and giving efforts that they're truly saved. We just want to see them make decisions. Um, so that was the end of the, that was the end of that sermon. And so I'll close with just a few generic remarks here. Is a crusade inherently bad? And if you hear some squeaking or whatever, my elbows are rubbing on the table. Um, so sorry about that. I'll take my elbows off the table. Are crusades, are big events like that, or like this, are they inherently bad? No. Are people who use these methodologies, are they, are they intentionally deceiving people or intentionally trying to hurt people? Of course not. The desire to see souls saved is wonderful. It is to be commended. We ought to be zealous about winning souls. But because the modern American church is so detached from biblical discernment, and because we don't put any emphasis on sound doctrine, our desire to see souls saved becomes this usage of man-made methods to, to manipulate people into making decisions. See, the zeal for winning lost souls has to be paired with sound doctrine and paired with the biblical teaching. What does the Bible tell us we need to do with our zeal to win lost souls? How does the Bible encourage us to win lost souls? How do we channel that zeal in a way that glorifies God and actually presents the true gospel? Those things have to go hand in hand. When one is detached from the other, and because I'll go the other way with it, when sound doctrine is detached from winning souls and proclaiming the gospel to the lost and being a light in the darkness, when sound doctrine just sits on its own and nobody's doing anything with it, then it's worthless. You know the truth, but do you really love the Lord? You know it, but is your heart far from God? Because all that sound doctrine, like there's no action there. Like, what are you doing with it? All the zeal in the world to win lost souls, if it is detached from sound doctrine, it's going to lead people astray. You're not going to be presenting the true gospel. You're, you're going to be misleading people, even again, unintentionally, but we've got to give people the truth. We've got to explain to people what actually saves, and that is the gospel, Jesus Christ alone. Do people believe, have they placed their faith in Christ? Do they believe that Jesus really is who he says he is? It's not about asking Jesus into your heart. It's not about saying a prayer. It's not about slipping up a hand. It's not about walking forward. And, and one, one last thing that's interesting. Earlier in the week at a youth rally for this, Rick Gage himself said, Jesus is Lord. You do not make him Lord. He is Lord. Yet in this prayer that he led people in here, he said, I invite you to become Lord and Savior. That's self-contradictory. One night, he said, you don't make Jesus Lord, he is Lord. On this occasion, he, he encouraged people to pray with him, Lord, I invite you to become Lord and Savior. Contradictory. That's an issue. Again, sometimes we do stuff like that. It's, it's, a, it's a slip, a slip of the tongue, a slip of the mind. Uh, but 
that exposes the problem. Like we talk out of both sides of our mouth when we do stuff like this. Oh, no, no, Jesus is Lord, but you've got to make him Lord. No, what is it? This, altar calls like this, presenting the gospel like this, calling people to Christ like this is complicated, confusing, and it's a mess. It's a mess. But when we look at scripture and we see how people were called to repentance, Paul told people at the Areopagus, God commands all people to repent. He's appointed a time that his son will return to judge. The one who is risen, he will return to judge. God commands all people everywhere to repent. On the day of Pentecost, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said what? Repent and be baptized. Why is that so hard? Why is that not enough for us? What must I do to be saved? Bow your head and repeat this prayer after me. Isn't that more complicated than just belief? Belief. By the way, when do you, where do you want to get baptized? <laughs> right? Like what, what is less complicated? The true gospel. And it's only the true gospel that'll save. For those of you who are watching on Facebook, I know that this was choppy. I know that it was in and out. Thank you for trying to watch whatever parts of it you got to see. Um, those of you listening to the podcast, um, I know I covered a lot. And in fact, I'm sitting here right now. And if I'm being honest, I feel like I feel like there was a lot of stuff that I didn't mention that maybe I should have mentioned. I also feel like um, I was moving so fast that that I lost my train of thought a few times. And I, and I hope that everything came out in a clear way. Um, I, I you know I honestly thought about just shutting it down and trying to re-record this tomorrow, but I'm going to leave it um, because I did my best to speak honestly. These are problems. Um, and I'm just asking people to think about them and consider them. I'm not asking everybody to agree with me. I know that, I know that people won't agree with me. And again, for the third time now, I want to say that this is not, a, a an attack against Rick Gage or his ministry. It's not an attack against the church of God or Lamar. It's not an attack against anybody. My prayer is that by bringing stuff like this up, that it will bring about, I, I do pray that God would use this to bring repentance. of the church body at large by, by using and trusting in unbiblical methods and not trusting the power of the gospel and that it would bring a greater unity that we could actually truly unite around the true gospel and that we would seek to proclaim that and only that, that we would proclaim Christ and him crucified to all those around us, that we would repent of trusting in gimmicks or shows or giveaways to get people to listen to the gospel and that we would just proclaim it to all those around us and that God would bless that, that God would, that God would purify us and sanctify us through, uh, through and by his spirit and through his word. And that again, at the end of the day, that, that we would just consider these things, that we would take a good, honest look in the mirror, as it were, and ask ourselves in, in a prayerful way, so really asking God, is there, is there anything unbiblical that we're trusting in? Are there any methods that we're trusting in that, that muddy the gospel, that make the gospel blurry, that make the gospel more complicated, that hide the gospel, that hide Christ from others? And... Um, I believe that we would do well to just sit and meditate on that and ponder that. And even if, even if at the end of the day, we find ourselves still in a sharp disagreement, 
we will still be sharpened by having meditated upon it and studied the scripture on the topic. And so it will unify the body of Christ. It will purify the body of Christ and it will sharpen the body of Christ. So I'm going to do a follow-up on this because um, I'd already planned to do one, but I know that tonight, I know that I wasn't as concise and clear as I feel like I needed to be. And so the, the, the next installment that's specifically on this crusade and Christian confusion bit, um, I'll do my best to, to try to be more precise and, and, and more clear in this, but uh, a podcast at an hour and a half, there's a lot of food for thought. Thank you guys for listening. Love you guys. We want to see the body of Christ edified. We want to see souls saved, and we want to see souls truly saved by the power of the gospel. We want to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We don't want to see him come to a decision. I don't want to see him come to a decision. I want to see souls come to a place of faith in Christ, repentance of sin and faith in Christ. So this has been Christianity proper, proper doctrine, proper life. We love you guys. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much. And may God be glorified in all things.